Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. One, welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and leader of the healthcare practice at Retzel and Andrus. And today I'm joined by Heather Adams, who's part of our employment group at Bretzel and Andrus, and she's also a shareholder. And we did a podcast not too long ago talking about investigations and uh, EEOC uh, actions. And Heather did a fantastic job. We have gotten such great feedback. So Heather is here again to kind of continue that conversation and maybe respond to some of the uh, follow-up questions that we received from physicians and others who watch that podcast. So welcome back, Heather. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Erica. Well, so what I want to talk about first is when we're communicating with the EEOC, and this is again, um, you know, after somebody has filed a claim, which we talked about in our last podcast, you wanted to talk about some of the do's and don'ts about those communications. So jump right in and, and share those. Yeah, no, I think it's important to talk about how you engage the EEOC, because it's one of those situations where everything you say will be you know, recorded and or remembered by the agency. And so it's really your first opportunity, if you haven't had an encounter with the EEOC, to introduce yourself and introduce the, your company. And so in eons ago, when I first started practicing, we always had this idea of telling the good company story. So you want to make sure that the EEOC thinks you're a good company, you're a good corporate citizen, or however you're structured. And so you always want to be both responsive and you want to be courteous. And I know sometimes that's hard, especially when you get a charge that comes out of complete shock and surprise to you. And maybe they're making some allegations that don't necessarily align with your understanding of the facts. Um, and you want and everything in your soul saying, no, I must object to these allegations. You know, your initial conversation with the EEOC is an opportunity to say we we you know, deny the allegations made against us, but it's really not your, your opportunity to plead your case. And so be courteous, be responsive, and, you know, don't uh, lambast the, <laughs> the, the complaining party, right? You'll have your opportunity to do that in your position statement and whatever your follow-up communication is going to be. Okay, so how we present ourselves is really important. It's not the time to try the case when you're responding. You'll, you'll have those opportunities. Um, you know, I guess what happens if you do something like that and you are disfavored? by the EOC person, you rub them the wrong way, they don't like you, can that come back to hurt you? It could. Uh, they maybe decide to be more thorough <laughs> in their investigation. I mean, I think we talked about in the last uh, podcast that um, the EEOC has a number of tools in their tool belt to get the information that they want. And first, they're going to give you a notice, a, a notice of the charge against you as an employer. And they're going to ask that you voluntarily respond always voluntarily respond. Otherwise, they're going to send you follow-up requests, requests for information, perhaps subpoenas. Um, and, and you certainly don't want a subpoena. And so, you know, my advice is always treat them with respect. And you'll be surprised to know nine times out of 10, the investigator that you're talking to, because it will initially come from an investigator, is not an attorney. You know, this is a person who has been hired uh, specifically to look into the facts. And so they're doing their job, like just like you do your job when you go to work, they're doing their job too. And so I find it to be um, helpful 
to develop a rapport with the individuals who's, who's looking into the facts because then they'll might be more open to reason or more, more uh, amenable to hearing your position on things. And so it's better to treat them with respect and understand they're just doing their job than to come at them um, with aggression or, or, or um, being upset because they are doing their job. Right, so um, I guess, what happens where a client doesn't contact you right away and they start talking with the investigator, they start sharing information. Uh, does this happen and, and does it hurt their case? Can you speak to that? It does happen, it happens all the time. And uh, the EEOC will tell you in their initial communication, the notice of the charge, that you don't need to have an attorney in order to respond. Now that, that is true. You do not need to be a, an attorney to respond. However, there are a couple of pitfalls that might happen. First, you know, if you are not a legal practitioner, you're not an employment attorney, you might make some admissions in your communications to the EEOC that you know you should not have made. And all of this stuff will come back in trial or it could come back in additional requests for information from the EEOC. Second, there may be some defenses that you have that you're not otherwise aware of. For instance, certain claims that might be brought against um, an employer requires that the employer actually employ 15 employees. So rather than giving all your, the facts that you know and responding and, and fulsome to that uh, request for information, you can simply say, we're not covered under the jurisdiction of the EEOC because we have less than 15 employees. So my recommendation is always to immediately forward your charge of discrimination to your legal counsel. Your legal counsel might even tell you, hey, since you wanna have this, this front this front facing um, relationship with the EEOC, you may do that. But let's, let's talk about what we can say and what we can't say, and let's work together to get a written response out. And so, um, yeah, there are some downfalls if you, um, if you don't uh, give the right information to the EEOC or you exclude some critical information that's helpful to your case to the EEOC. Um, and the only other thing I would add to that is I do spend a lot of time or some, some significant time trying to right the ship once a response has already gone out to the EEOC. Let's for instance say, you know, someone, says that you discriminated against them because of their gender. And all your response says is no, we didn't, period. Yeah, well, that's not necessarily the response that your attorney would have told you to send. And there's some different um, preliminary steps that we need to take that your attorney can guide you um, to do prior to sending a response back. Okay, so in terms of drafting this kind of position statement, let's talk about that and, and that process. I assume that's one of the things that you often have to correct, right, when the um, employer does it on their own. But what is the process for preparing that kind of statement? What goes into it? And, you know, what are some of the do's and don'ts of that? Sure. Uh, the first thing we want to do before we even start putting pen to paper is figure out where we're at, right? What has been done up until the point when you received the charge of discrimination? Were the interested parties contacted? Did you have knowledge of the allegations against the company prior to the charge being filed? If so, is that documented somewhere? Once you learned about the allegations, did you talk to the person making those allegations? Did you talk to any witnesses? Did you document any misconduct 
that anyone may have been involved in. And so I need to understand as your counsel and you need to understand as an employer, what do we have, right? Like let's lay all of our, lay all of our facts and tools on the table. And once we get an assessment of what we have, then we need to think about what don't we have? What would be critical? Do we have an incomplete personnel record? I mean, that happens, you know, people get busy day to day and they don't put all the files and all the documents in the personnel record like they should. In states like Illinois, the employee has a right to their personnel record. There's literally a statute, the Illinois Personnel Record Request Act. And so if that person, in addition to their charge of discrimination says, and I want my personnel record, or even the EEOC comes to you and says, and we want the personnel record, do we have it? And so we just need to take stock of everything we have, identify those things that we need to put in place and get to work. Um, the EEOC will tell you the, that you have 30 days to respond to their position or their request for a position statement. I typically ask for an extension. That's my um, practice typically, and they're typically willing to give you some sort of short extension, but I need it so we can all get together and figure out what's there. You're not gonna provide your best response if it's a rushed response. And so we wanna make sure that we've taken stock of everything. Once we do that, once we figure out what we don't have when we get it, then we can get to writing. So you talked a lot just now about the process of really what to do when there is an initial claim of discrimination. You and I have worked on a couple of cases recently where you know, we've been somewhat frustrated by how things have gone down <laughs> with our clients. And I thought it might be helpful to kind of touch upon actual real life scenarios and the things that make your job harder. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you see employers doing wrong that, I don't wanna use, I don't know, frustrate is the right word, but kind of make it harder for you to help them. Yeah, I like to think of them as opportunity areas. Some, some opportunity <laughs> areas where- For improvement. For improvement, exactly. Where, where employers can look at is, like we spoke about earlier, that initial process, right? You don't start collecting documents. You don't start following up on uh, allegations of wrongdoing or policy violations only after you get the EEOC request. Like that's the very last point that you want to have started this process. And so oftentimes I find that there has been an allegation made and a person in a, superv a supervisor or managerial position just does not follow up on it. They say, oh, we knew this was an allegation. I talked to the person, we're good. You know, that's not sufficient. The EEOC is going to ask, what steps did you take to investigate and to address the allegations contained in the charge? So that means if you're a manager and, and, and if you are the manager of managers, right, frontline managers, they need to know that if there's anything that might trigger, uh, you, you know, your antenna to go off, like I've been treated differently, I haven't received the right pay. I feel like I'm being harassed in whatever respect. That should be an indication that not only should that person um, report it to HR if you have HR, and if you don't have HR, then that supervisor must take it up to whomever they report to. So if that's the, you know, one of the managers or members of the organization, then that should be passed on. Second, you should also make sure that you follow up on the allegations. The worst thing you want is an employee who feels like they weren't heard. 
And that oftentimes is where the charges come from. So you've got this allegation. You may not have the answers then, but you have to tell that employee, thank you for sharing. We are going to take, uh, take prompt investigation into your allegations. And then you start talking to the people who may have knowledge. You get written statements from those people. You do your complete and full investigation. And although you may not share the details of what your investigation uh, found, you can go back to that employee and say something to the, the effect of, thank you for sharing. We've looked into your, your complaints. We either are taking corrective action that needs to be taken, or we were not able to substantiate your claims. But please let us know in the future if you feel like something like this has happened. So now we've closed the loop. We can't leave that loop open because when you do, then you get a charge. If, for instance, a person makes a complaint against another employee, then we need to take whatever corrective action may be warranted in that case and make sure your personnel record reflects that. Okay, so talking to people in a timely manner and documenting it, even if you never have to address an EEOC claim is really important because it's hard to recreate. Plus, people you may need to talk to might not be working there anymore or might you might not be on good terms with them anymore. And we've had a situation where we had uh, an employee um, you know, action going on and the manager uh, subsequently left and is not on great terms. And so here's somebody we we're really relying on to help with you know, uh, defending the practice's position and that person is not on good terms anymore, which hurts our entire case. So really having a proper timely documentation would have made us less in a reliant position on somebody who's no longer, you know, going to be assisting, right? So we have that kind of situation. And I know the other one is sometimes we think, you know, we, we've worked something out. We've worked out a deal with someone, right? So let's speak to how that can hurt someone's case as well. Sure. You know, I talk to a lot of employers and you talk to a lot of employers who just want to do the right thing, right? We don't want to hurt. Let's say we have a misbehaving employee. We don't want to hurt their chances of getting future employment. We, you know, we're, we like them as people, even if they violated our policies or did something that was outside of what we would, you know, what matches with our culture. We don't want to prevent them from moving on with their lives. And so then we do things to kind of make them feel better about being fired or whatever that discipline might be. But that's also problematic for the employer. You, you know, what's the saying, no good deed goes unpunished, right? When we don't properly document an individual's misconduct, uh, when we don't object to an individual's request for unemployment insurance because we don't want to make it a hard time, even though technically under the rules they wouldn't get it for misconduct, then we're not helping our defense should that person come back and file an EEOC charge. Because that person's going to say, look, not only did they not put anything in my personnel record, like I have, I have a stellar record, right? <laughs> right. Mediocre employees become stellar employees at trial, right? That's going to be their their argument not only did they not <laughs> pad it you gave me my unemployment insurance even though you could have objected but they didn't even object if i was so bad they would have had this document also if you don't get anything in return don't give it up i know that sounds terrible and i know we all want to be good people and it shouldn't be quid pro quo but in the game of employment and mitigating your risk it is if you're not going to take some sort of step against an employee for violating your policies or you know 
for whatever it is that they did, make sure you get something in return. And that should be a waiver of claims. If you are giving something up and you don't have a waiver of claims, then you don't have a deal until that is done. And so that employee can say, oh, sure, I'm not going to file an EEOC claim or sue or disparage you or go online and talk about how terrible people you are. But they didn't sign anything saying that they wouldn't do that. So you essentially have nothing. So don't give up something for nothing. Makes sense. So let's say we go through this whole process um, and the um, at the end result, the employee decides, you know what, I don't care what the EEOC says, I want to file a claim. All right. What does that look like for the employer? What should they do? And especially if they've handled this on their own all along and they never got counsel involved, like, are they, do they have any chance because that EEOC record is out there? Uh, you know, what should they be thinking about? So they should be thinking about litigation. Um, if you have gone through the EEOC administrative process, uh, there's only going to be three real results from that EEOC process. I will tell you 95% or even maybe 98% of the time is going to be a letter from the EEOC that says there's not sufficient information that we were able to find through the course of our investigation and therefore we're issuing this right to sue letter to the complaining employee. And what a right to sue letter is essentially what it is. It's their right to now go to court to sue you because the EEOC couldn't substantiate the claim. Um, you know, 1% or less of the time, the EEOC might say, you know what, there is something here and we're actually going to substantiate the charges and we're going to take it over and we're going to sue you. No one wants the EEOC to sue them. So hey. they could do that. Um, and then very few times, so I've had it happen once in my career where the EEOC will come back and say, the claims are unsubstantiated. It's very rare. EEOC doesn't like to do that. We don't like to say, yeah, the, the employee has nothing. But once you get that right to sue letter, the employee goes to court, whether it's federal or state court, and they file a lawsuit. So now we're really in the ball game. And at this point, you really need to secure counsel if you haven't. And you should secure counsel as soon as that right to sue letter goes out. I mean, in a perfect world, you would have been talking to your counsel every step of this process. But since, hey. like, you know, if you're not, as soon as you get that right to sue letter or you know you're waiting on a deliberation from the EEOC, you should be talking to counsel. Because once that lawsuit is filed, there's only a few ways that we can get that lawsuit hey. out of the court system. So how much of the EEOC record is available and becomes the basis of the claims that are made? You know, are all those witness statements evidence in that case and your position statement, even if it wasn't well done or it's not completed, is that it? Are you allowed to, is this an opportunity to correct the record also or no? Well, virtually, I'll say most documents that are filed with the EEOC are available if you do a FOIA request because they are a governmental entity, a federal governmental entity that so anyone can do a FOIA request once the case has been closed. So once they issue that right to sue letter, you can now go, play, you know, the employee or you can go and file a FOIA request for the record. There are some things that may be redacted, but statements are certainly in there. Um, most definitely would be the statements of any of the employer's witnesses. So if you're talking to the EEOC without representation, all of that's in there. Um, 
the uh, complaining employee statements are in there, any records, personnel records will be, a lot of stuff will be in there. And that could form the basis of your, the employee's initial discovery. And for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, litigation, that is the fact-finding portion of litigation. And so any lawsuit will start out initially once, you know, if we have a, a well-pled complaint, you will go into discovery where you can ask for information, you can do depositions, all that good stuff. So now the employee has, you know, a little mini, a mini pile of information that they can comb through to see whether there's any um, admissions against interest in there, which means that if the employer said something that hurts them, um, they can't use the, the determination of the EEOC to prove their case. However, you know, I've had judges bring that information in for whatever reason, you know, you can't, you can't rely on the, the decision of a, another agency, but you certainly can rely on any of the facts that was assessed or any of the um, persuasive information that that agency reviewed. And in that way, you can introduce the decision, but you don't, I mean, it's not ideal. So does a right to sue always end up in court or if you have arbitration provisions in your agreement, could you end up in front of an arbitrator? So you should be in um, an arbitrator. I mean, I would argue, this is this is me, if I had an arbitration provision, I would try and resolve the matter before the arbitrator, before fully responding to the EEOC, if, if I could kick it out. If I could not kick it out, once the uh, employee got the right to sue letter, then you could try and mediate it. You could try to um, arbitrate. I'm not a huge fan of arbitration because you know it's kind of like the wild west sometimes. It's like anything goes, anything comes in. Um, the the plus side to arbitration, however, is that you don't have a public record. So if an employee gets a right to sue letter and they file a lawsuit against you within a court, that filing is public. So you should know that. So anyone searching your company, if they are savvy enough to go on to you know the federal district court's website, can file right. find that filing. Arbitration, on the other hand, you can't really search in a database for that. Um, do, you, do you think that it'd be faster and less expensive to use the arbitration approach as compared to the litigation? Do you find that those are about the same? Or I usually, in, in other types of matters, find it faster and less expensive to do, you know, things that go, I'm not a litigator, but the items that go through arbitration mm -hmm. Um, you know, usually turn out that way. It doesn't take five years where in the court system it could, right. right? So I don't know. What's your thought on that? It depends on the matter. It depends on the issues. It depends on the complexity. Right. Uh, if it's a single plaintiff, one of the mill type of facts pattern, you know, I was fired because I'm a woman, something like that. And there's, you know, minimal evidence that this person was terminated because of their gender. And all signs point to this person simply just being a bad employee or right. there's some other reason. Right. I'm not gonna arbitrate that. <laughs> I likely won't. Um, I, I will, you know, allow that to go to litigation. If it goes that way, I'm gonna file, I'm gonna take the plaintiff's deposition and I'm gonna file my motion for summary judgment and get it kicked. Um, right. Or if it's small enough, let's say you're dealing with a, um, a not highly compensated individual who's been out of work for two months, then they found some job afterwards. And so we're only dealing with two months of back pay. I likely will tell my, the employer I'm working with, just pay the back pay <laughs> because it's going yeah. to be substantially less than legal fees. Right. You know, we've gotten cases kicked for two or less, $2,000 or less. Right. So we can settle it, we'll settle it. 
Right. If it can't be settled and it's super quick, fast, easy, sure. If we have multiple plaintiffs with multiple allegations across multiple facilities of the employer, I may arbitrate it if I think it's going to be held up in court forever. And I'm frankly scared of having the publicity surrounding that case, potentially. Um, but I haven't been pushed into that type of position outside of wage and hour, which the EEOC um, doesn't cover. So I typically don't arbitrate my, my employment claims. So I like the topic of settlement. And, you know, as I mentioned, I'm not a litigator, but I work very hard. I'm probably the first line of defense when my clients have disputes going on with their employees, whether they're leaving, they're hinting that there's an issue. I'm always like, what's it going to cost you to get rid of this and get a separation agreement signed. So probably three quarters of the things, you know, that could come to you don't because I'm like, you know, just pay it. <laughs> like it's more money than you wanted to pay, but it's a lot less money than what you could pay. Right. Yeah. So settlement is great. And, you know, a lot of people feel very indignant about settling because they feel they didn't do anything wrong and it's, they're being held hostage or, um, God, what's the other word I'm thinking of? Um, you know, they're, they're just being forced to pay, to make mm -hmm. something go away where they didn't do anything wrong, right? But it costs mm -hmm. a lot of money to be righteous, right? Um, and uh, so settlement can be hard to swallow, but at the end of the day, it's usually the better answer from a business perspective. That's my view. Do you agree with that? I do. And let me say, there is no shame in settling. There is <laughs> no shame <laughs> in settling. It is a business decision. You need to look at your bottom line sometimes and, and your line items, if you have a line item for legal, and just say, this is a part of doing business. The one thing about the American legal system is that you don't have to prove anything before you file a lawsuit, right? Like you can, you can know you have no claim and still file a lawsuit. And the administrative cost of just getting that out of the system and plucking that out, it may be less just to pay. Now, I understand there might be some reasons why you don't want to settle. You don't necessarily want to set a certain type of precedent for your business. Right. Fair. I understand. Or this person's engaged in conduct that's so egregious that you actually want to make sure that it's fully litigated. Totally get it. But don't be upset with your lawyers. If the lawyers have crunched the numbers, so we're back in our offices with our visors on and our hot lamps, and we're looking to see <laughs> what these numbers are looking like. And if the threshold, you know, the, the, the cost of getting rid of it is nominal, nine times out of 10, we're going to say to you, we should probably just settle it. But I certainly understand when companies don't. I worked for an industry um, that never wants to, to settle because of the precedent that it might set across the entire industry. Totally get it. So don't right. be mad at your attorneys. There's no shame in settling. And sometimes it's the best decision right. for your business. And, and one thing I'll mention is because the people watching this podcast are more physician practices, dental practices, small businesses per se, this is not worth the cost for them. And most of them can't afford what this could cost. Uh, it you know, is harmful to reputation, harmful to the relationship with other employees, and it costs more money than they are going to be comfortable spending. And I know it's hard for some of them to eat it. And there are certainly circumstances where pursuing it is absolutely the right way to go. But in a lot of cases, you know, it's 
it's hard for them to accept that settling might still be the best outcome, putting this behind them, moving on, you know. So just for those of you listening out there, you know, we're, we're not saying your case isn't a good case. We're just talking business sense when we recommend that you settle. So, you know, sometimes people have a hard time accepting that. All right. So this has been a lot of information. Uh, we can probably do another couple hours on the EEOC. But any final thoughts that you want to share today? You know, the best, what is it? The best defense is a great offense or offense is the best, best defense. One of those little sayings. The point is, before you even get to the EEOC, do your work, right? Make sure that you're being diligent. As diligent as you are with your patients, you need to be as diligent with your employees because that information is critical to protecting the business. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's about doing no harm to your patients and doing no harm to your business. And so whether you need to outsource that to a third party, there are some third parties that have, you know, they'll charge you a monthly fee to maintain your back-end records. Maybe that's what you do. If you have enough staff, maybe you just get an HR person in there, but whatever it is that you do, make sure that you protect your documents and you protect the integrity of your personnel records and, and the way you manage staff. So those are my closing, closing thoughts. Otherwise, you're going to be talking to Erica and I. <laughs> because we're That's right. And that was great advice. And of course, if anybody listening has questions, feel free to call Heather directly. We'll have your contact info when we post this. And I'm always happy to answer questions. But as you can see, I'm not the expert on this topic, but I can steer you in the right direction. So um, thanks to Heather for being with us today. And thanks to all of you. This is the Health Law Hotspot. We hope you'll join us next time. And you can catch our prior podcast that we did on this topic, um, as well as all our other ones at ralaw.com. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.